Hello and welcome to episode 383 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan and today we have a very, very special guest, one of the oldest friends of the show. Of course, this is a young man who has dedicated his life pathetically to Microsoft Excel. This is a young man who has never touched, let alone cut a blade of grass in his entire life. He's so pale, you can actually see right through his skin and out the other side. It is our translucent director of analytics, Michael Leone. Mike, how's it going today, buddy? I want it on record that I worked at McNutt Landscaping for one day. I one made day. it one day. I completed <laughs> the day. <laughs> he has touched the blade of grass for one day. Anyways, on today's show, we are going to talk rankings and players. I know most of the talk you guys see right now on Twitter and other places is about structural strategy and roster construction edges for best ball and figuring all that stuff out. And, and that is important. But you know what else is important, Leone? Picking the right players, you know, team play the best plays, if you will. So today we're going to talk a, from a micro perspective about a ton of guys, why we have them ranked where we do, and really answer a lot of your questions on this topic. This is going to be a two-part series. We have we got so many good questions from people. I want to get to them all. So we're going to do two parts on this. Before we get into it, wanted to remind everyone this show is indeed brought to you by our friends at Underdog Fantasy, undoubtedly the smoothest, highest stakes, best user experience for anyone trying to play best ball. Use promo code ETR when you sign up for a $100 matching deposit bonus. And of course, you can upload our rankings directly on the Underdog if you so desire. Also, I mean, we are grinding our cocks off on YouTube, man. I mean, we're putting out videos that you won't find on the pod feed. Herzig is doing the live streams of the drafts a couple times a week. Leone already did one. I'm doing another one. Today, we have shorts up there. You can see Leone making some TikTok vids and stuff like that. Totally free. You can find it on our YouTube channel and subscribe. Really does go a long way towards allowing us to, to keep doing free content like this. All right, Leone. Have a lot to get, you, get to here today. Just real quick before we get to the actual player stuff. I know that you're much more into the macro strategy of a lot of this stuff than maybe I am, and certainly more than the baseline player is. How do you think about individual player micro takes? Because a lot of the, I think people take structural drafting too far where they just throw their hands up and say, hey, we know nothing. We're just going to win on structure. I, I think that's dead wrong because I do think you can win with player takes also. But I don't know. What do you think about all that? Yeah, no, I think you want to find the perfect middle between having your player takes, but then also being anchored to ADP to an extent, which helps in a couple of reasons. One, if you're anchored to ADP, it helps you build kind of a super team. So if you've got, you know, two guys in your personal ranks or in the ETR ranks that are ranked similarly, weighing that ADP is going to lead you towards possibly getting both guys and just drafting in a greedy way to kind of try and build these super teams. And we do want to have some humility and understand that the market as a whole is decent at fantasy football, especially as we get later in the off season, um, the ADP becomes a little bit more efficient, but there's definitely still going to be gaps where we feel like we have an edge. We have a whole projections team that's been working on this stuff for months already. We're starting to get really dialed in and we want to take advantage of that. And some of the situations that you can take advantage of are people 
that are either aren't projecting the situation accurately in terms of not understanding, you know, how the target shares are going to get distributed, how the play calling is going to work for the teams. And that's something we do. And then the other side of it is just the risk reward spectrum. You know, someone, um, you know, we're going to talk about a bunch of these today, but some of the spots where we're different than the market is just because we're putting more emphasis on guys that maybe could be league winners and, you know, docking guys that, maybe could fall off a cliff, even though it's hard to visualize that now, just understanding over the course of an NFL season, what can happen from a player talent perspective. All right. Perfect. Okay. Let's get into it here with one of the bigger debates that I think people have is my God, we have Javante Williams 27th overall. And this guy was splitting down the middle with Melvin Gordon last year. Are we really taking a straight 50-50 timeshare back at 27th overall? We have Javante 27th. We have Melvin Gordon 107th. Now, I will note, this is a new coaching staff, so there's no lock that they're going to do the usage the same as they did last year. And also, Melvin Gordon was a free agent, got like very little interest from what I could tell, ended up signing a one-year, $2.5 million deal. I mean, that is like Dearness Johnson type money. So they certainly did not invest a lot in bringing Melvin Gordon back, but there's a huge gap here. We have 80 spots between Javante 27 and Melvin 107 here. Leone, how are we projecting that? And do you feel good about that ranking? Yeah, I feel pretty good about it. I'd maybe like him more in the mid end of the third round than perhaps early in that third round, which 27th indicates. But this is one of those risk reward situations where I think all of the backs in the first few rounds basically are riskier than people think. A lot of them are being taken where they are because of projectable volume day one that's not necessarily going to last over the course of the season. And Javante Williams just starts with a little bit more risk because it's going to be somewhat of a timeshare, but he's got the same ceiling as a lot of guys going in front of him, especially over the course of a full season. We saw it in just the one game that Melvin Gordon did miss last year, you know, over 100 yards rushing. I think he caught six balls off nine targets, found the end zone, a couple of times and he's a back that we had in that mix as the top back in last year's class coming in even with Najee Harris and Travis Etienne in the class uh, I think um, Mike Renner maybe had him you had him on the show last year was really high on Javante Williams I know PFF likes him because his broken tackle rate was awesome in college really elusive back and we love backs that can catch the football so we see him starting to inch ahead of Melvin Gordon in base rush share a little bit. We see him being the more likely pass catching back. And that makes it so if they split all season, he's going to be a small loss in the third round. But we're okay taking shots on guys that can be small losses and big hits. And if Melvin Gordon, who was great last year, if he falls off as he ages or he gets hurt or the new coaching staff just decides to shift to more of a workhorse role for the younger, more talented back, um, he, he would be going in round one, especially with Russ here, if Melvin Gordon didn't exist. Exactly. And, that, and I, I'll say two things. The first thing I would say is, yes, if Melvin Gordon didn't resign, I think Javante would be like a top five pick. No question. The second thing that I'd say, though, that I think maybe people are underestimating, Melvin Gordon was pretty good last year. And coaches love like giving the ball to Melvin Gordon. Like He's historically been really good at earning carries. And so I'm okay with Javante Williams in round three for all the reasons Leone said. I'm also okay with Melvin Gordon at 107. Like to me, there's guys running backs going in round six and seven that have similar profiles to Melvin Gordon. Just everyone has such a hard on for Javante. They can't bring themselves to accept that Melvin Gordon was pretty good last year. And Melvin Gordon is going later. And the reverse about the injury stuff is true too. If Javante Williams gets hurt, Melvin Gordon is going to absolutely smash. So we can't say that as a benefit for Javante and not say it as a benefit 
for Melvin. So like, I like where we have Melvin right now. I'm happy to take him in the early hundreds. What do you think about that? Yeah, a hundred percent. I agree with all the things you said, you know, the, the anti-fragility argument works both ways. You can't just make that argument for the player that you like and not for the player that you dislike. And I just did a handcuff running back article for underdog and some of these more ambiguous backfields, the market was dead wrong last year. You know, the RB twos, and that's included the Javante Melvin situation. Um, the RB twos in terms of ADP draft order uh, of the more ambiguous backfields did better than the RB one in all the cases. Now that that's not always going to happen. I like Javante. Basically, I think he's break even right now where he is, but I'm fine being ahead of market on Melvin Gordon. This offense in general, there's a few situations this year because we had so much activity in the offseason where I'm focused on the upside that's created from uncertainty. And that uncertainty can stem from coaching changes and in particular, a lot of quarterback changes. So this whole Denver offense yeah. gets just this absurd upgrade. They got a new coach and the upgrade from Drew Locke slash Teddy Bridgewater to Russell Wilson. Some guys here are going to pay off huge. Uh, it, it's a tough team to project. There are going to be some guys that disappoint for sure, but I'm chasing the ceiling on the Denver skill players where I can. Yeah, we're going to get, we got a question about Jerry Judy too. We're going to get to that in a minute here. I have two more personal questions before we get to all the, all of the uh, responses we got on Twitter. The second one is around Josh Allen. I obviously think Josh Allen is the best fantasy quarterback. You'd be hard pressed to find anyone who disagrees with that. The part that makes me a little queasy, Leone, is how high we have Josh Allen. I get that the market is taking him in round uh, three also, but we have him around 32nd overall. Now, Leone's going to make an argument here about quarterbacks separating from a ceiling perspective and predictability of those quarterbacks separating. So I'll let him make that argument, but I do want to say, Leone, before you go in on that, that last year, Ack, Burrow, Brady, Herbert, we didn't have to spend around three, round four, round five pick to get those guys last year. And to me, those guys emerged with the same ceiling, maybe not as consistently, but still had the same ceiling that Josh Allen and Lamar and Kyler or whoever else had. So I guess what I'm pushing back on is, in take, is taking a round three quarterback, period, because yes, it's predictable. It's also just as predictable in round seven, eight, six, seven, eight, nine, where I typically like to take my quarterbacks. No one is arguing. It's a strongman argument to say, oh, I want my QB1 to be Kirk Cousins. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that round yeah. three from a structural perspective is just too high given quarterback separation ability and predictability. So go ahead on, on defending Josh Allen in round three. Yeah, I like it more end around three. Generally, if you are picking 32nd overall, there's going to be a few other guys ranked ahead that have fallen to that point where you're not really in actuality taking Josh Allen at 32 overall even though that's the way it works out in the ranks. And this is very best ball specific where the scarcity of the position changes a ton from best ball to manage. You know, I'm um, looking at some of our managed ranks. You know, we have him back more like under the fourth round, but it is tough where I think the market's overvaluing a lot of the mid-tier quarterbacks. Um, we're below market on a lot of the mid-tier quarterbacks. So to get them even kind of close, it's like, well, it, you know, the converse of that is the, high-end quarterbacks are actually undervalued somewhat. And Allen in particular, um, from a structural standpoint, like me personally, the way our projections and ranks work, I understand why we have such a gap between him and the other quarterbacks because it's one of the highest expected scoring offenses. It's one of the highest offenses in terms of expected pass rate over expectation and it's elite rushing upside. There aren't many quarterbacks that give you all three of those at the same time, and Allen does that. So he even separates from the elite guys in a somewhat predictable way. And then the thing I'm looking at this year, 
I think the end of round three, start around four is a bit weaker than it's been in years past. And Justin Herzig and I, on his first underdog uh, live stream, Best Ball Summer, we took Josh Allen at the end of round three. Uh, and we, we knew you wouldn't be happy with it. But the way it fell was all the wide receivers we might take at that turn, like DJ Moore, Jalen Waddell, who even feel not as strong as maybe the wide receivers last year, like they went. And then you're at a point where am I taking Terry McLaurin at three, four? And, you know, we had Joe Mixon and we correlated it and there's some stacking options that you have. So it's a best ball specific play, but I'm okay with it at the end of round three, where I just think this range of wide receivers isn't as strong as mm. it's been in years past, particularly last season. Okay, that's a fair point. The, the guys that I would say this year who I think we can get later and have at least a chance to be in range of Josh Allen would be Jalen Hurts, Joe Burrow, Dak Prescott, Russ Wilson, Russ Wilson, Trey Lance. I mean, those would be the guys that are going, you know, later, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, that I think would stick out to me. And Let's I would go. say with Allen, you're paying for a little bit of certainty too. Yeah. If you're being greedy and you want more upside taking Jalen Hurts two rounds later makes more sense because he does have the ceiling. But there's a lot more risk because, again, Allen's going to throw the football 100 more times than Jalen Hurts, mm -hmm. and his team's going to score more points. So, like, as good as Hurts is, even he does have a little bit of a hill to climb to match Allen. Let's go to Robbie Anderson. Uh, I don't know if this is a hangover from last year where you were relentlessly playing Robbie Anderson when everyone else had given up on him already. But Robbie Anderson we have around 128. His ADP is around 168 right now. He's like, I don't want to say off the rails, but he's like saying some weird stuff. He was tweeted about retirement and deleted it. He changed his name from Robbie with a Y to Robbie with IE. He changed his number from number 11 to number three. He still has Sam Darnold at quarterback for now. And the best case scenario is probably Baker Mayfield. So I assume this is just you personally going into the projections and giving Robbie Anderson more target share than he should have, correct? Well, you know, when he changed the name from Y to IE, he got an efficiency bump across the board. <laughs> that was pretty important for us to kind of kind of see that from him. Um, in all seriousness, it's just, uh, excuse me, in all seriousness, there's just no target competition here. And I do like to be careful about players where there's no target competition and giving them more than they deserve on talent. But he was getting the targets last year. He was just so, so bad. And it's hard to be that bad. And our efficiency baselines are just basically saying he can't be that bad. Um, so if he gets similar targets, he's going to perform a lot better. And one thing we do with our rankings, we have a base projection for players, but we also have a ceiling projection for them and odds of hitting that ceiling. And I feel like we've docked Robbie Anderson's odds of hitting the ceiling because of what happened last year and whatnot to the point where sometimes I'm just trusting the math where I'm like, this is about as low as we can go unless we're completely fudging things. And that's where I'm at with Robbie Anderson where – um, he's going to have a pretty good base target share. Even if you don't think he has a great ceiling in this offense, where he's going, he should pay off. He is someone I like a little bit more, you know, in best ball than in redraft, just because I think that those targets will give you some very usable weeks, which is important in best ball. Yeah. I was just going to say that I'm, I'm joking. I'm actually fine with Robbie, but be careful about where you're taking him at ADP. Like obviously a pick 160 is way better than pick 125. You know, just because we have him 128th overall, you need to be aware of ADP and be aware where he's going because you can certainly get him way, way, way later. All right, let's get to some of the uh, listener spots that they identified what they want us to talk about. First from 
Herziger, Justin Herzig, he says, why do you hate Zach Ertz? And this is one that I actually identified also as one to ask you about, Leonie. I mean, after the trade last year, Zach Ertz was a target hog. I mean, he was like 5,400 on DraftKings, and people were playing him. And for people that don't play on DraftKings, 5,400 for a tight end is pretty expensive. After the trade last year, though, Zach Ertz was earning targets at a really high rate, 7.3 targets per game. That includes some games that DeAndre Hopkins was active for. That includes some games where Zach Ertz was just getting acclimated and didn't have a full-time role. Now DeAndre Hopkins is suspended. Now Zach Ertz has had a full year. You can make, in Arizona, you can make a lot of positive cases for Zach Ertz. He's also only 31, which for a tight end is not that that old. But we are very far behind ADP on Zach Ertz. What's going on there? Yeah, I did bump him up a little bit, kind of looking at that closer and how consistent his target share was with Arizona last year. But it's a situation where I'm worried about chasing those targets this year. I don't necessarily know how predicted that will be of him this year. I'm giving him a little bit of a pass for two years ago when his efficiency was just so dreadful with Philly. But even if you give him a little bit of pass, you can't completely ignore that. And at a certain point, some of these older players, they will fall off a cliff. We might not see it coming. We've already seen signs of it from Ertz, even though he bounced back. So that concerns me. They spent a second round pick to take the top tight end in the draft and Trey McBride. Um, over the course of the season, you know, where production starts to matter a little bit more end of this season, you can see McBride cutting in. It's not like this was a team that targeted the tight end a whole bunch bunch before Ertz came along. So if McBride's going to play some, you know, I don't see them rolling a whole bunch of two tight end sets and having, you know, two tight ends actively involved in the passing game. Um, so it's going to have to come from Ertz. And we think Rondell Moore is going to take a step forward and, and be targeted a little bit more. They do lose Christian Kirk, but they replace him with Marquise Brown. And, you know, Hopkins, of course, suspended the first six games, but he's going to be back when it counts most. So those are the concerns with Ertz. He's going as a top 10 tight end overall. I think he belongs more in that tier of like tight end 12 to tight end 15. Yeah, that's fair. I I would say uh, I think people are going to wait the DeAndre Hopkins suspension probably more than we would because, as Leone said, the time where you want – your players performing best is not in weeks one through six. I will say, though, that without DeAndre Hopkins, and I don't really have a ton of respect for Marquise Brown's game too much, and I certainly don't have a ton of respect for Cliff Kingsbury's ability to scheme plays for small guys like Rondale or Marquise Brown. I mean, it's going to be like, let's get our best pass catchers on the field. Kyler's going to be running for his life and making plays and like checking down to Earth with something he was obviously comfortable with. So I feel maybe a little bit better than Leone about Ertz earning targets through the whole year. But yeah, I mean, be careful. With also, I mean, it's, it's also, it's just one game, so it shouldn't matter, you know, all that much, but he was pretty dreadful in the playoff game as well. And yeah. if he, I'm not weighing that game more than other games, but I think it should count, you know, just as much as a regular season game should. Sure. Okay. We mentioned the Denver stuff. We got a question from Mitch Painter. He says, Jerry Judy should be higher. Now, Listen, man, Denver, I don't think people realize how loaded Denver is. Like, we know they're going to run the ball and probably run it pretty well with Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon. We already talked about that. At wide receiver, they have Judy, Corlin Sutton, Tim Patrick, KJ Hamler. At tight end, they drafted a dude in Greg Dolchich who, like, all he does is run routes. And now, of course, we all like Albert O. We think he's a freak talent as well. I mean, how is Denver possible? No one can support all these guys, let alone a Denver team with – Russ, who's going to run the ball a decent amount. So yeah, I'd be really, to me, if anything, we should have Jerry Judy lower, not higher 
And I also think that Sutton versus Judy is a really interesting conversation. We have them about five spots apart. I've been doing the Bible narrative jokes on Sutton. You know, it's it's hard for me to decipher between those guys a lot. And then, of course, Tim Patrick is always impressing. And KJ Hamler, as I mentioned, is coming off the knee injury. But we think he can really play, too. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of disagree with Mitch here that we should be higher on Judy. I actually think all these guys come with a ton of risk. What do you think about the Denver wideout and pass catching situations? Yeah, we've started to back off both Judy and Sutton a little bit. We were pretty aggressive on them. You know, again, I do want to buy into this situation overall because I think some of these guys have huge ceilings, but some of them have to disappoint. You know, there's too many bodies there. The ADPs are too rich. And I think they wouldn't be as high if, but wide receiver, again, I think it's kind of scarce. And as a result, that pushes Judy into like the beginning of the fourth round. You know, you get him at the three, four turn. And it doesn't feel that great, but I do like him better than some of the other options. I think the ceiling is meaningfully high there. He was a pretty good prospect. He's, you know, the guy that could just rack up a ton of catches if they do throw more. But there's a lot of uncertainty here, both in terms of competition and in terms of play calling. We think they're going to throw more than they did last year. Combination of you know, all the shootouts in the AFC West with the new coaching staff and the, the quarterback switch. But we don't know for sure, you know. It's not like Hackett comes from a background where they're running at a fast pace and throwing a lot because that's absolutely not the case. And same thing for Russ, you know, so how much of that was Seattle, how much of it was Russ. So um, I've started to actually back off and move them down our rankings a little bit. We still have them both, you know, around in line with where the ADP is at. And I think they're draftable because the ceiling cases are so strong, but if everybody stays healthy and the ceiling cases don't hit, you know, yeah. going to be some disappointment for Denver. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, you're not getting a discount based on their depth. I mean, these guys are going very, very, very high RG. freaking Hamler is going. Like, yeah. like all, there's a lot of Hamler stands out there, and I like yep. the talent, but even he's going high. Yep. Shout out Penn State. Let's go to a question here from Jax. He says, please hit on TJ Hawkinson. I'm way bullish on him and think the Lions offense could be pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I've been talking about the Lions for the last two months. I have so many bets on the Lions. I also think that DeAndre Swift is an awesome, awesome, awesome pick in round two, particularly in full PPR uh, formats. But anyways, we are a little bit behind ADP on TJ Hawkinson and we're way ahead of ADP on Amon Ra St. Brown. I I'm of the opinion that what Amon Ra did down the stretch last year was not a fluke, but people can argue Swift wasn't there. Hawkinson wasn't there. Now they've added DJ Chark. They're eventually going to get Jamison Williams. So, you know, Amon Ra is going to get squeezed pretty hard in terms of earning targets. What do you think about Hawk and Amon Ra? Yeah, I think we might have some room to increase Hawkinson a little bit up our ranks on efficiency. He hasn't been that good to start the year or to start his career from an efficiency standpoint, but he is a good prospect and there's more help around him, which should help, you know, just free him up a little bit more, especially once Jamison Williams can hit the field and stretch the field for Detroit. So he's, I don't have a hot take here. I just think he's going right about where he should. I think he's fine. I think there's enough concerns to not move him up more over his production. The first couple seasons where He's had a lot of opportunities to really shine and he hasn't been bad, but he hasn't been particularly good either. Um, and there's enough good things to just say, well, he's been earning targets and, and the team's going to be better around him that essentially we have him where we had him last year, maybe, maybe just a touch lower because of the emergence of Amon Ross St. Brown, who, I mean, he was a legitimate target hog down the stretch. And that's the guy I'm more excited about relative to ADP where usually you see the market 
overreact to something like his six game stretch where he averaged 25 PPR points per game. It's not happening. The market's not overreacting to that. Um, JJ Zacharyson had a good note, but basically any rookie that's had a stretch like that ever has been mm-hmm. like a certain baseline level of good moving forward for a couple of seasons. Um, so I'm really into my, I'm on Ross St. Brown. I'd rather take him at ADP than Hawkinson. Yeah. I mean, you don't do what Amon Ra did without being able to ball. Uh, I mean, dude can obviously really, 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 really play. And, and, you know, people are calling him Detroit Cooper cup and stuff like that down the stretch last year. Like, yeah. And I'm still so excited about the lions, man. I hope I'm not wrong about this because I really think they're going to be, I'd be surprised if they were not able to win like seven, eight, nine games and be an exciting offense. I know that's asking a lot and the lions always disappoint, but yeah. Um, I got my 10 to one ticket, uh, thanks to you. So for them to win the division. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or 12 to one. Yeah. I got like 14 and a half on that, but but yeah, I mean the best one that I like is the, I actually like the Dan Campbell coach of the year one, the bet the best. That's the 60 to one that um, you're, yeah. You're out here making me feel like Silva shaming me for not getting the 14 to one number that you got. (laughs) Um, here's an interesting one from Jenks. He says, can you talk about Keenan Allen? versus big Mike Williams. And, and this is one that actually when I'm on the clock where we have our rankings, I, I'm getting a ton of Keenan Allen. Like it, it gets to me, especially in full PPR, I'm getting a ton of Keenan Allen. But his underlying metrics on Keenan to me are scary. I mean, he's 30 years old. He's continued to decline in productivity, particularly last year down the stretch. He really fell off. They just gave big Mike Williams three years, $60 million. I do think Josh Palmer can certainly play as well so do you have any concerns about us being ahead of market on keenan allen how would you compare him to big mike yeah i mean it's a tough one because if they're going to get similar amount of targets like they did for a little bit of a stretch last year big mike has the ceiling that you want undoubtedly but it didn't last you know last year that target share for big mike Mm -hmm. williams and i think keenan allen He's someone in a different offense that would be a really big risk because it's very volume dependent. We need him to rack up targets. We need him to rack up catches. That's the only way he's going to hit value, pay off his tag. I'm fine passing on him because he might not be the prototypical you know, ceiling that you want to take with a, a third round pick. But again, wide receiver seems a little scarcer here than last year. And the targets for Keenan year in and year out, I mean, he's around 150 targets every year. And now the Chargers... Um, are going to run at a really fast pace. They're going to throw the football a decent bit, maybe not a crazy amount, but they're going to have a positive pass rate over expectation. Mm -hmm. And they're going to need to throw the ball likely, you know, just given how competitive the AFC West should be. So uh, from a systemic standpoint, I'm a little worried from Keenan Allen because he's dependent on such high volume. But given this situation, I think there's a really strong chance if he stays healthy that he will continue to see this volume for another year. I will say this Chargers defense, I mean, with the pieces they've added, they might have like one of the most talented, if not the most talented defenses in the entire league. And I'm not saying that that won't lead, they won't still get into shootouts because obviously like with the rules the way they are in today's NFL, you know, like when you're playing Patrick Mahomes and, and when you're playing Russ Wilson and, and even Derek Carr and guys like that, it's really hard to stop them. But I will say Chargers defense I actually think could be really, really good this year um, for what it's worth. Okay. Herbert versus Burrow. Brett asks about Herbert versus Burrow. We have Justin Herbert around 71st overall. We have Joe Burrow around 102nd. That's a pretty good big gap for two players. So I think a lot of people view similarly in terms of talent, view similarly in terms of weaponry. I think Herbert has proven to be 
more aggressive, or at least the play calling for Herbert has been way, way, way more aggressive through his career. But you see when Burrow gets pushed, I mean, he can have huge, huge, huge games. So we have a wider gap than I think people expect between Herbert and Burrow. What do you say to the people about that? Yeah, I think for starters, we just have a much higher expectation for how the play calling is going to run for the Chargers. Just hit on it with Keenan that they're going to have a positive pass rate over expectation. They're going to run at a fast place. Like they're going to run a lot of plays per game. For Cincinnati, you're talking like five less plays per game. A team that at times flashed some aggressiveness in the pass rate, which gives Burrow a huge ceiling given his efficiency, given the weaponry. But I don't think we can assume that happens like we can with the Chargers. So if we assume like a neutral pass rate and less plays per game, Herbert's just going to drop back more frequently than Burrow, um, Mm -hmm. which is a big deal. And then also on the ground, uh, Herbert's run for around 300 yards each of the last two years. Burrow total in two seasons. I know you can give him a little bit of a break because he had a shortened rookie year. And then the sophomore year, he's coming back from the ACL injury. So he may have been somewhat conservative, but he's only run for 260 yards in 26 games. And Herbert, you know, they're going to go for two pointers more often. The little things add up. I think that he's going to have some rushing equity by the goal line. One of those sneaky candidates to rush in six touchdowns. So all these things add up and just make us feel a lot more confident in Herbert than Burrow. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's totally fair. I mean, Burrow to me is like prototypical DFS play, not just because he's my boy from the FanDuel thing, but when he doesn't always hit his ceiling, so he's not that owned because he doesn't always drop back enough. So projections aren't always huge on him, but when he does hit, you know where it's going. And so like the Burrow stacks um, are clean and they often come in on their own. So we'll talk more about that as DFS season gets closer. And like tiny thing, as good as I expect him to be from an efficiency standpoint, I think it's dangerous to just assume if they pass more, he'll stay as efficient. I mean, he was at Mm -hmm. nine yards per attempt last season. That 70% completion rate really, you know, the TD rate, I guess could get a little bit higher, but um, those are really high numbers to clear. Like those, even if he's super good, they probably come down some. And, and but you know, counter to that would be the offensive line is massively improved too. So hopefully, some more clean pockets, and more time for Joe Burrow. Also, um, all right, last one we're going to do here in part one. We'll get to the rest in part two. It comes from Bobby G. He says, "Why Najee Harris at RB seven and Derrick Henry at RB nine? Seems low for both guys who should dominate touches, albeit just in average offenses." You know, I, I think people are probably struck that we have Derrick Henry. At RB9 in any type of half PPR, full PPR setting, he's going to get docked. But we always seem to be a little bit lower than market on Derrick Henry. But anyways, Najee and Derrick Henry, go ahead on them. Yeah, um, with Najee, it's, you're completely volume dependent, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, you want a workhorse back. He's a young workhorse back. He's shown he can handle it. Um, that's someone I'm going to look into. It's possible we're a little bit light conservative on him. Um, worried the efficiency is not going to be there. But again, you do get a quarterback switch. I think it at some times is even underrated, like how bad Big Ben was. So mm-hmm. um, Najee is someone that might move up our rankings a little bit as I look closer. It's just going back to the Javante Williams conversation, you still have this risk for these really volume-dependent backs. And you know Javante has the same ceiling as Najee Harris. You're really paying for that workload from day one, which it, you know it's, a, it's for sure a positive. That's why we have Najee a good bit ahead of someone like Javante Williams, but um, 
I know I just I just prefer some of the other backs there. And then, but I feel less strong about Najee than I do with Derrick Henry. Henry concerns me because they lose AJ Brown. He's coming off of injury. He's getting older. And he, you know, he's really volume dependent and he's volume and efficiency dependent because you need him to score a ton of touchdowns. You need him to be pretty good in terms of yards per carry. Najee Harris is at least well-rounded. He's going to catch the football a bunch. Mm -hmm. You know, he's more game script proof. Henry really scares me. I think the ceiling's still there because, I mean, we've seen it and they're going to try to feed him the ball, but there are a lot of ways that this could go really badly for a round one pick. So I'd want him at the end of round one, not early round one. Yeah. I mean, Derek Henry needs the Titans to be good is the bottom line. And like, I, you know, I, I think the Titans are going to be okay. Um, I'm skeptical thinking that they're going to be good. And and we'll talk some more about the Traylon Burke stuff as you get closer to the season, replace, trying to replace AJ Brown with him, et cetera, et cetera. On Najee, yeah, there's talk around the Steelers that they want to let lessen the load on Najee. It's just hard for me to believe that because anytime Mike Tomlin has had a reasonable back in his career, it's just been an all-out, like, ride this dude into the ground as hard as he possibly can. So I, I don't I don't see them taking, the, taking Najee off the field for Anthony McFarlane like they're talking about now. That's something the coaches love to say in June. And then when the chips are down, like, we're not putting in Anthony McFarlane or, or whoever. Uh, and taking Najee off the field. And his thighs are are big. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's going to do it for part one. Appreciate all the questions. We'll be back next time for part two to hit on Chiefs wide receiver. We'll hit on Tampa Bay wide receiver spot. We'll also hit on DK Metcalf in part two. Four. Leone. Four. Jerry. Four. Producer Luke. I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm-hmm.